Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to make a chat about Pedro II of Brazil, who ruled as Emperor of Brazil for almost 60 years, and who was, in my view, one of the greatest monarchs ever to have lived. And you'll find out why soon enough, as we get into his story and as we chat properly about the bloke, he was he was wise, he was far-sighted, he was progressive, he was patient and tolerant and serene. And across his long reign, he completely transformed Brazil. Pedro was, a, was an immensely popular emperor uh, who came to power as a child, just as a little kid, um, and for the overwhelming majority of his career, he was um, he was beloved. He was uh, he was seen as a unifying figure for a country that had been through crisis after crisis before he took the throne. But Pedro came along. He steadied the ship, and then very carefully and very deliberately steered his empire in the direction which he thought it should go. Which happily involved not just modernization but also liberalization. Pedro was a dyed-in-the-wool supporter of things like freedom of speech and, and abolitionism, which put him at odds with most of the people in his nation. Uh, something he fought for for his entire reign. He was also extremely intelligent. He was a learned man of science with a deep appreciation for culture and the arts as well. This bloke, honestly, he could do it all. Sadly, however, the imperial crown weighed very heavily on his head uh, with some unfortunate consequences towards the end of his reign, uh, as, as we'll come to. But across, across again, nearly six decades uh, of imperial rule, Pedro gave absolutely everything to his empire, turning a post-colonial Brazil into a significant emerging power in the back half of the 19th century. I'm a big fan of the bloke. I can't wait to tell his story. Got a bit carried away while working on this episode. It is going to be quite a hefty one today. But I do hope you'll stick around uh, until the end for two reasons. Um, firstly, got a couple of rather embarrassing issues to address in the wake of last week's episode. I appreciate all the emails I got letting me know <clears throat> some of the errors I made. Oops. So we'll be talking about that. But on top of that, I've also got, quite honestly, a very exciting announcement to share with you. It's not about the book. Um, but we'll get we'll get to all of this after the, the, the story of Pedro. So do stick around. Anyway, it is going to be quite a long one, as I say today, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get stuck in here. Off we go with the story of Pedro II of Brazil. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 2nd of December, 1825, to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, back when it was an empire, which is uh, which was it was when Pedro II was born. Um, this was the same year, in fact, that the empire of Brazil was officially established in 1825, uh, as it happens. Um, in real terms, Brazil had gained independence from Portugal in 1822, um, but the conclusion of the Brazilian War of Independence uh, ultimately led to Brazil's official recognition by Portugal and the world more widely as an independent nation a few years later in 1825. Um, and broadly speaking, not exactly, but broadly speaking, the territory that the empire held back then is largely the same as today's republic, right? Today's Modern, modern day Brazil. The only major difference is that uh, what is now Uruguay officially split off from the empire in 1828. Um, the first emperor of Brazil was a fellow named Pedro, Pedro I. He was proclaimed in 1822 and recognized, as I say, in 1825. And he was the son of none other than the Portuguese king, John VI. Now, after being put in charge of Brazil, right, as a, uh, as a prince, as a Portuguese prince, Prince Pedro rose up in rebellion against his old man. He declared, fought for, and then won Brazil's independence from his own father. And then, to complicate matters even further, his dad died the next year. He inherited the Kingdom of Portugal, Pedro I did. Um, but this, as you will understand, was a far too hot for him to handle. He had just he just fought a war of independence against Portugal and then was handed the Portuguese throne. This would be like uh, this would be like George Washington, right? After having won the American War of Independence, inheriting the British throne. It was not a sustainable situation. In the wake of the War of Independence, Portugal and Brazil wanted nothing to do with one another. And so Pedro abdicated. And he abdicated the Portuguese throne, not the Brazilian throne. He abdicated the Portuguese throne in favour of his daughter, Maria II. Maria II then 
married her uncle, which is, you know, just again, the done thing in, uh, in, in when it comes to European royalty. Um, and then her uncle, Miguel I, uh, promptly overthrew her as the uh, as the Queen of Portugal, uh, usurped her position as monarch until Pedro I then stepped back in and restored her to a throne. But that, that's, that's another story. Our focus isn't on Pedro I. Our focus is on Pedro II, his son, who, as I say, was born in 1825, the very same year that the Empire of Brazil was first established. Pedro I and his wife, Maria Leopoldina of Austria, who herself was the uh, the daughter of Franz II, the last Holy Roman Emperor, they had Pedro on the 2nd of December, 1825, their seventh child together and, sadly, their only surviving son. I do, I, I say his name was Pedro, and it was, but uh, look, I don't want to be accused of leaving out any important details about this bloke. That's why this episode is so bloody long. Um, and part of the reason the episode is so long is because now I'm going to read out for you his entire name in full. Um, get yourself comfortable because we're going to be here a while. It was... <clears throat> Pedro de Alcantara, João Carlos, Leopoldo, Salvador, Bibiano, Francisco, Javier de Paula, Leocadio, Miguel, Gabriel, Rafael, Gonzaga. Now, I know I'm a bit greedy. I've got two middle names of my own. But what the bloody hell is going on with that name? Anyway, um, Pedro didn't. Mm, no, no. Pet, we'll just we'll just stick with Pedro. Pedro, um, he's got some, as you can see, he's got some properly blue blood in him with a name like that. Uh, not only is he the the grandson of the last uh, the last ever Holy Roman Emperor, he's also the cousin of Franz Josef I of Austria, uh, and also of uh, Don Maximiliano I of Mexico, and he is also the nephew of Napoleon himself. So this bloke is from from some very very royal stock. Sadly, his mum died when he was just one year old, but uh, Pedro I remarried and young Pedro II seemed to get on very well with his stepmum, Princess Amelie of Leuchtenberg. However, young Pedro's life took a very unexpected turn in 1831 when he was just five years old, when his dad abdicated his Brazilian throne as well. Pedro, Pedro I seemed to have a real taste for abdication. This is the second time he's done it, right? He's given away his Portuguese throne and now given away his Brazilian throne. He returned to Portugal to fight his usurping brother on, on behalf of his daughter, restore Maria II to the Portuguese throne. He was ultimately successful in doing so and then promptly died a few years later in 1834 at the age of just 35. So pretty, pretty tragic tale, uh, Pedro I. However, importantly for our story, his abdication made young Pedro, his son, an emperor. Emperor Dom Pedro II of Brazil, who was looked after in his youth by three guardians that his, that his father had appointed before leaving. Jose Bonifacio de Andrada, a leader of the Brazilian independence movement and, and close friend of Pedro I. Uh, a bloke named Rafael, a war veteran who was charged, charged to protect the young emperor. And Countess Mariana de Verna, who acted as uh, Pedro II's governess. Now, these three oversaw a strict study and training regimen for young Pedro, who was made to hit the books like you wouldn't believe as he grew up. He had a voracious intellect, even as a kid, and he learned quickly and very readily about anything and everything. Um, now, that sounds well and good, preparing him for the, for the trials and tribulations of leadership, obviously stuffing his head with as much information as possible so he can make very good decisions. And that's certainly what happened when it came to the first-rate education that he received. However, there was a, a more unfortunate and quite sad side to the childhood of Petro II. Um, he was known to have had a very lonely upbringing. He didn't really have much contact with any other kids, not even his sisters, and so he grew up a very shy and unassuming, very reserved little kid who didn't get the chance to hang out with kids his age throughout most of his childhood. While he was a kid, a regency council ruled the empire. It was set up as a triumvirate. There was a liberal, a conservative, and someone from the military, all of whom represented the three main factions of Brazilian politics. And this triumvirate did, not to mince words, a his poor job of keeping the empire together. There were rebellions, there were political crises, there were rifts and feuds and conflicts all over the place. It was turmoil. Brazil was in chaos during this regency period. It got so bad. It got, here's how bad it got, right? It got so bad that by 1840, even the members of the triumvirate themselves, they realised that they weren't fit to rule and that something needed to change. And the decision was made, therefore, to bring young Pedro II's age of majority forward to 14 so he could begin his reign early. 
Just think of that. Three grown men with years and years of political experience deciding, hey, do you know what? Actually, do you know who would do a better job than us here? A 14-year-old kid. But here's the best part. They were absolutely right. When Pedro officially took charge of the empire in 1841, the fractious politics of the young empire completely changed. Pedro II, he's just a kid, right? He's a shy and a nervous kid at that, given his lonely and bookish upbringing. But he was hailed by Brazilians of all backgrounds and all walks of life as someone who would bring peace, freedom, justice and security to his new empire. And without wanting to spoil the ending too much for you here, that is just what he did. Let's talk about the the realm that he inherited and what he did with it. When Pedro II came to power properly, Brazil was an enormous but very sparsely populated nation, and it had very deep political, cultural, and ethnic divisions running through it. Pedro II was acclaimed as a source of national unity and political legitimacy, and despite his quiet and shy nature, he embraced the monumental challenge of bringing his empire together. He did have some pretty significant advantages from the get-go. He had widespread political support from Brazilians who saw him as being above the petty factional infighting that they'd suffered throughout the regency. And secondly, as the years passed, he began to grow not just into his role as emperor, but also into himself as as a young man. Pedro went from being withdrawn and insecure to being confident and and self-assured. He was always very quiet, but he was friendly, he was likeable, and this quiet attitude he he had meant that he came off as as, as dispassionate and reserved, which is not a bad uh, not a bad trait for an emperor to have by any means. Apparently, he never ever lost his temper ever, and more broadly, never really expressed strong emotions of any kind. He was as I say, quiet, reserved, but it was this confident, it was a confident reservation, not the, not the painful shyness that had dominated his childhood. He was a serene and, and, and thoughtful, patient and careful man, but uh, also effortlessly likable. Pedro, Pedro essentially had the, the best temperament that you could hope for when it came to someone in power, and people loved him for it. And it also didn't hurt that he was 1.9 metres tall and dashingly handsome. Certainly wouldn't have made things worse for him. In the mid-1840s, he toured his empire to great acclaim. People came out to see and pay respects to their their young emperor. And then in 1843, he got married to Princess Teresa Christina of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Uh, Apparently, Pedro didn't think much of his new wife. They didn't get on all that well to begin with, Uh, although that changed a little bit as the the years passed and and they had had kids together. Although that... Even that didn't stop Pedro from having affairs, but we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later on as we explore this bloke's character a bit more fully. By the end of the 1840s, Pedro was ruling completely in his own right. He was unencumbered by those who had influenced him as a, young, a youngster. He discreetly had all of these former advisors uh, removed from his court. He chose not to surround himself with, uh, with anyone who had previously had authority over him while he was young. Um, and uh, this was a good thing, I think, him him ruling in his own right, because as we head into the 1850s, his reign was put to some early tests, three of them specifically, uh, which we'll talk about very briefly here. Firstly, the Priera Revolt. It broke out in 1848. Uh, disaffected political radicals known as Prieros, they organised themselves in rebellion against the empire. But Pedro, who mo- he moved quickly, he moved decisively, he crushed the rebels. The, re- the revolt was broken up by 1849. And Pedro, um, certainly clearing the first hurdle, demonstrating his capability to deal with internal threats and disunity. Now, secondly, this issue a bit more uh, complex and a lot more important and something that would, uh, I think, in, in, in a very real way, define an aspect of Pedro's uh, imperial career. It was the issue of slavery, um, an issue that I'm happy to say uh, saw Pedro very firmly take his place on the right side of history. Brazil had banned the importation of new slaves by the time uh, we, this, this crisis came along in, in the 1850s, although sadly, the institution of slavery internally within Brazil, even if new slaves weren't being brought in, um, slavery stuck around and survived within the empire through existing slaves who then would give birth and those young children would then grow up to be slaves as well. So. A very, a very sorry state of affairs, although not one that stuck around forever, thanks to Pedro, as we'll, uh, we'll eventually come to. However, anyway, back here, back at this point in the 1850s, the illegal trafficking of slaves, new slaves being brought to Brazil, 
was undermining the the ban of the the official ban of importation of, of new slaves, and it caused tension between Brazil and abolitionist nations like Britain. Now, Pedro, who, as I've said, was a staunch and unapologetic abolitionist. He wanted to crack down on the illegal slave trade, not just to normalise relations with Britain, but also because he had a, a, a firm, a firm hatred of the institution of slavery. And so by 1852 had passed sweeping laws that allowed Brazilian authorities to go after these, these illegal slave traffickers. So again, this was another success for the young emperor and a very admirable one too, um, because despite having the support of more or less any everyone in Brazilian society, uh, more or less everyone in Brazil at this time was in favour of slavery and, and didn't really mind new slaves being smuggled into the country. Pedro nonetheless worked very hard to completely shut down the illegal slave trade throughout his entire empire, but unfortunately not the legal internal slave trade, which would remain in place for a while yet before Pedro could, could address it properly. Anyway, we, we will come back to that. The final issue, the final issue, was a full-blown international war when conflict arose between Argentina and Brazil, ultimately resulting in the Platine War in 1851. Argentina was rattling its sabre over territorial claims across, across Uruguay, Paraguay, and Bolivia. And Brazil didn't like this. They didn't want Argentina to become too powerful across the South American continent. And so what followed was a brief but very decisive war that saw Brazil and its Uruguayan, Paraguayan, Bolivian and rebel Argentine allies beat the Argentinians. Now, this was a very important victory for Brazil and for Pedro II personally, as it helped him to secure further political legitimacy for him, not just at home, but also internationally throughout South America. And on top of this, it also changed the landscape of South American politics. It reshuffled loyalties and alliances within some of these very volatile South American regimes. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we come to the Uruguayan and the Paraguayan War. But this victory in the Platine War, a huge step for Pedro II uh, in terms of making, uh, making his presence felt on the international stage. These three crises, they took place between 1848 and 1852, and this four-year period cemented Pedro II as a decisive, effective, and very talented political leader. At this stage, few could question or even really criticise the way that he'd handled these issues, and Pedro emerged from them with even more political support and personal admiration than he'd had beforehand. According to the average, the average everyday Brazilian, this bloke just couldn't put a foot wrong. Ah, oh, he had this weird thing about slavery, but, uh, you know, we'll let him go. We're a big fan of him. He's he's doing an incredible job of steadying the ship. We've gone through years and years of this turbulence during the Regency. This bloke's large and in charge, and he's doing a great job. And you might be surprised to learn here, it only got better for Pedro from here. Because the 1850s saw Pedro and Brazil thrive like never before. Brazil emerged as a regional power. It underwent swift and significant changes to everything from its culture and values to, to its economy and infrastructure. Pedro oversaw the modernization of his realm with railroads and telegraph systems built across its vast territory, supporting the development of, of modern industry. And this, in turn, saw Brazil's economy flourish. An enormous wealth was generated for its people, which obviously only made them happier with Pedro's rule. But what's really admirable about Pedro is his unyielding devotion to liberal progressive values and the, the way in which he implemented them doggedly throughout his realm. I want to talk about the personal character of this bloke because it really is so interesting to explore and uh, we'll tie that into how he approached achieving his, his political agenda here. Pedro was a very consultative and collaborative monarch. Unlike many other monarchs, he didn't rule as an autocrat, and he wasn't right down the other end of the spectrum as a figurehead either. He worked alongside elected politicians of all backgrounds and beliefs, even the ones who disagreed with him, using his enormous platform of, po of political legitimacy and, and, and widespread popular support to move things in the direction that he thought best. And happily, the direction he thought best was to liberalise Brazil enormously, Pedro was a firm believer in things like the irrepressibility of personal and civil rights, the importance of a free press, the promotion of accessible and high-quality education, and, as we've said, the total abolition of the slave trade. And he worked very willingly, even with those who opposed these goals, showing enormous patience and tolerance, and never reacting strongly to criticism or to resistance. Now, of course, it's 
Very easy to do this when everyone in the country bloody loves you. Sure, it's easy, for instance, to support a free press when all they're doing is printing reams and reams of newspapers about how terrific you are. But still, look, full credit to the bloke. His ideas were ahead of their time. Due to Pedro's calm but firm hand on the tiller, Brazil stood out amongst its politically fractious and volatile South American neighbours, many of whom had a new tin pot dictator in every other week. I know, I know I'm really getting around this bloke, and I know it's, it, maybe it's coming off as a bit tiresome, but I think it's absolutely fascinating to explore a monarchy like this. Uh, an emperor universally beloved by his people, possessed of a seemingly perfect personality and temperament, not to mention tall and handsome, this had so much to do with him achieving his political aims. As this serene, patient, tolerant and reserved emperor, he stood in sharp contrast to the turbulent regency, with which no one remembered with great fondness, and of course, the volatility of other South American regimes, as I just said. His approach to personal involvement in government through patient collaboration and the input of so many different voices, both supportive and critical, it helped him to be a very effective emperor. And he made himself available to his people, too. Twice a week, he would hold open court sessions where anyone at all, regardless of social standing, could come before him and air their grievances. And this wasn't just to solve their problems. Pedro didn't do this just to help people. That was one of the reasons that he did it, of course. But one of the other reasons that Pedro opened his court to, to the you know people off the street was to gauge the overall mood of the nation, keep his finger on the pulse and respond accordingly, something also aided by his unswerving dedication to a free press. The newspapers could come out and talk about what issues people were facing rather than just blowing smoke up this bloke's ass. And so Pedro was able to see what was on people's minds and, as I say, respond accordingly. Additionally, Pedro, on a more personal level, was extremely hardworking, unbelievably so. He slept for only four or five hours a day. Um, he devoted the overwhelming majority of his time to governance, uh, so much so he didn't have much time to devote to his personal passions, or passion, really. There's only one that he he loved above all else, and that was learning. Uh, but the time that he did have, he put to very good use. This bloke was an absolute genius. He was he was a savant, really. He had a working knowledge of topics from physics and chemistry to geology and geography, from from painting and sculpture to philosophy and religion. And on top of this, he could speak not just Portuguese, but English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Occitan, Greek, Latin, Arabic, Hebrew, Sanskrit, Chinese, and even Tupi, an indigenous Brazilian language. This bloke was incredible. He freely encouraged the spread of education throughout Brazil. He financed cultural and scientific institutions. And he corresponded with some of the leading minds of the time, such as Friedrich Nietzsche, Louis Pasteur, Alexander Graham Bell, Victor Hugo, the list goes on. So the bloke, he's basically perfect, isn't he? He's a brilliant and progressive emperor. He's an academic genius. He's leading his country on the path towards greatness. Everyone loves him. He's even got, on top of it all, a great big bushy beard. Could this bloke be any more perfect? Is there anything at all wrong with him? Well... Uh, I did mention his affairs before, um, which from the outset doesn't seem to reflect too well on him. But as I tell you the full story now, you might become a little bit more sympathetic towards Pedro. Because as we've established, he was a, he was a thoroughly diligent emperor. He was devoted to his duty to Brazil and its people. And it was this rather unromantic mindset that dominated his marriage. Because he saw his marriage to Teresa Cristina as a duty not as a pleasure, and while their relationship did improve in time, it was a political one. It was a professional one, first and foremost. Pedro was known to feel, just as he had as a kid, lonely in his marriage. And so these, these affairs that he had, they were, by his own admission, admission, him seeking the companionship that he had never had. His lifelong devotion to affairs of state meant that he never had some of the happy things that you and I take for granted. And look, I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse adultery. It's, it's not on. Don't do it. But then again, you and I aren't 19th century aristocrats being forced to marry for politics rather than love. So it is at least a bit different. Anyway, even if he was off with other women here and there, Pedro remained a diligent husband on... Uh, on, on, on what I guess you could call a professional level, as weird as that sounds. And there was certainly no doubt that he loved and deeply cared for the children that he had with Teresa Cristina. Sadly, 
Uh, the sons they had together, none of them made it to, to adulthood. They, they died when they were young. Um, and this had another important consequence for, um, for Pedro as, a, as not just an emperor, but as a father. He very much hoped for, for a male heir. He hoped to raise a son to, to take over the throne when he died. He believed that the empire wouldn't survive without a son to, uh, to inherit it. And I suppose it's a shame from that perspective that he didn't try to break another historical norm and, and, and try to make progress in another area by raising his daughters for rule. But that's the way that it went. And uh, he never seriously considered grooming his, uh, his, his daughters to, to take over the empire once he died. Anyway, broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that Pedro was, an, was, was a ruler of impeccable character. Monarchy is obviously far from the ideal form of government, but Pedro Pedro showed history what that sort of power is capable of when it's put in the right hands. But while he was a brilliant leader, as a man individually, he was, I mean, he was flawed, certainly, but honestly, there just wasn't that much left over of him once you take away his professional duties. To be honest, he was that dedicated to his his life as, as an emperor that there's not really that much of his life as an individual for us to for us to explore and talk about. And honestly, I I kind of feel like that's that's a little bit sad. Anyway, we'll move on from talking about Pedro's personal character here. You can tell that I'm a huge fan of the bloke, so sorry for harping on about it so much. Let's talk now about some of them, some more of the challenges that he faced as emperor. Into the 1860s, new problems arose that consumed much of Pedro's time and energy, principally important international diplomatic issues. In 1861 and 1862, a diplomatic incident with Britain emerged after a British ship was wrecked off the, off the Brazilian coast and then subsequently looted by Brazilian locals. And things were then worsened when some British military officers uh, were arrested in Rio de Janeiro after getting pissed and making a nuisance, a nuisance of themselves. These two seemingly unrelated incidents made the British go after Brazil quite strongly, more or less attempting to bully them into submission and humiliate them on the world stage by having them not only seek Britain's forgiveness but also pay them back for the plundered cargo and fire the cops who arrested the British officers. Pedro, however, he stood firm. He was steadfast. He didn't give the British an inch. He refused to acknowledge that Brazil had done anything wrong in either situation. And this caused the British to order the capture of Brazilian trade ships to pay for the loss of the looted cargo. And this very much looked like a prelude to war. Pedro's advisers wanted to give in to Britain, um, which, as I'm sure you know, at this time in its history was close to the height of its power as an international empire. But Pedro, he wouldn't hear of it. He completely and utterly refused to yield. He made a strong point of standing up to Britain and all the sabre rattling that the British were doing. And this rather seemed to surprise the British, as you can imagine, as a global hegemonic power, they weren't used to being stood up to. But Realising that Pedro had quite the backbone on him and that their position wasn't quite as strong as they perhaps thought, it was actually the British who backed down. They stopped their posturing and offered to come back to the negotiation table. The Belgian king, Leopold I, arbitrated between the two empires. He found in favour of Brazil. He ordered Britain to pay money back to them for the capture of their ships. And Britain refused. And so Pedro responded in 1863 by severing diplomatic ties with the British Empire for years until the British finally turned around and apologised for the whole affair so as to normalise relations once again. A huge win for Pedro, taking on and diplomatically defeating the most powerful nation on earth. Again, Pedro showed the strength of his leadership. He wasn't about to let anyone, not even the mighty British Empire, walk over him and his people. But another test of his leadership quickly emerged when, in Uruguay, a bloke named Venancio Flores and his Colorado party started a rebellion that led to civil war breaking out in Uruguay in 1863. Now, you'll remember that Uruguay used to be part of Brazil, um, and Brazilians in Uruguay, the ones who had been left over, they were suffering mightily during the Civil War. They were being robbed and murdered. 
And so Pedro felt compelled to act, especially as he wanted to continue to project power in his conflicts more broadly around the world with nations like Britain. So he ordered the invasion of Uruguay, therefore, to uh, intervene and support the Colorado rebels and protect Brazilian interests throughout Uruguay. Now, Argentina intervened as well, but this time on the same side as Brazil. Their past differences beside them, Brazil and Argentina entered the Uruguayan War as allies and very swiftly helped to bring about a victory to the Colorado rebels. Financio Flores, the leader of the rebels, he was installed as the new Brazilian-backed president of Uruguay and his party, the Colorados, they're still around in Uruguay even today. They're actually right now, at the end of 2023, part of Uruguay's ruling government coalition. So this was another big victory for Pedro. Again, his people are out in the streets. They're celebrating his leadership. However, while Pedro's interventionism certainly helped to bring about a speedy end to the Uruguayan war, it directly led to another much longer war, the Paraguayan War. This one lasted years, not months, and it was the largest and bloodiest war that South America had ever seen. Paraguay had been allied with the administration that Flores had overthrown with the help of Brazil and Argentina, and so in the wake of the Uruguayan War, Paraguay was none too pleased with the outcome. There was a lot of historical regional tension um, that was a result of various complicated territorial claims between this all, na- all these nations. Look, we're, we're not going to get into it. But these tensions were now exacerbated by the fact that Brazil was, Brazil was not only aligned with Argentina now, but also the new Uruguayan regime. The Paraguayan president, Francisco Solano Lopez, who was a bit of an, bit of an agro-nationalist at the best of times, he didn't like this situation. Uh, he felt that Paraguay was threatened by the loss of their allies in the, in the former Uruguayan regime. And so before the Uruguayan War had even wrapped up properly, the Paraguayans, who didn't directly intervene in the Uruguayan War, they were out rat- rattling their sabers, aggressively posturing against Brazil and Argentina, sensing an opportunity to advance Paraguay's regional interests and power while all their enemies were wrapped up in this war. Paraguay announced that if Brazil and Argentina continued to intervene in Uruguay, Paraguay would consider them enemies. And when Brazil and Argentina continued their campaigns in the Uruguayan War, Paraguay made good on the promise it had made, and war broke out in 1864 when they invaded Brazil. Pedro himself announced that he would lead against Paraguay from the front and personally travel to where the war was being fought. Now, his government tried to stop him, saying that it was no place for an emperor. But Pedro, again, steadfast in his resolution, he responded by saying, If they can prevent me from going as an emperor, they cannot prevent me from abdicating and going as a fatherland volunteer. It really does feel like Pedro wasn't the sort of bloke to make empty threats. Uh, It seems like had he been pushed to, he would have abdicated and gone and volunteered to fight at the front lines. And so his government just decided they would let him go. His presence on the front obviously put a huge amount of momentum behind the Brazilian forces as they went up against Paraguay. And the Paraguay invasion, the Paraguayan invasion, it failed. They failed in their attempts to invade Brazil. But even so, the war didn't end when the invading forces were defeated. For five years, Pedro, as a workaholic emperor, spent all his energy trying to win this war. Again, refusing to back down in the face of foreign aggression. Brazil and all the other nations involved, they paid a heavy price as this war continued and the casualties mounted, most of which were a result of disease rather than battlefield injuries. But while the war affected all of these South American nations terribly, principally, It was Paraguay that suffered. It is estimated that 60% of the total population of Paraguay was wiped out during the war. And most of this 60% were men. So many men died that once the war finally finished, men were outnumbered by women in Paraguay four to one. Proportionally speaking, the Paraguayan War was one of the most devastating conflicts of the modern era, and it was only after five long years of fighting that it finally came to an end. 
Brazil and its allies, Argentina and Uruguay, they were victorious. Paraguay lost all the lands that had been under those territorial disputes I mentioned before. They were forced to hand them over to Brazil and Argentina. And this was, strictly speaking, another win for Pedro, who had been determined to achieve total victory over Paraguay, something that he was successful in bringing about. But this victory came at an enormous cost. Hundreds of thousands of deaths across five brutal years of warfare. And also, much less importantly, but nonetheless very interestingly, this victory came at a huge personal cost to Pedro as well. You can go online. You should do this. Go online and have a look at photos taken of Pedro in 1865, around the time the war broke out, right? And compare them to photos taken five years later in 1870 when it ended. Pedro aged very visibly in those five years. He looked much older than his 44 years when the war finally concluded. And also, for the first time in Pedro's career, the public was now not overflowing with endless support for their emperor. War weariness had taken its toll, and Pedro's reputation as this perfect monarch was tarnished by the devastation caused throughout the war. I will say this, however, the war did not change his character. Because when a governmental proposal was put forth to construct an equestrian statue of Pedro to commemorate the Brazilian victory, have him up there on a great big horse looking all fancy and flash, he struck down the idea. He ordered the money instead be spent on constructing new primary schools. With the Paraguayan War finally in the rearview, things improved enormously for Brazil throughout the 1870s, with the nation entering, entering into something of a golden age, really. Brazil's mighty economy could now be refocused away from the industries of war and instead to the improvement of infrastructure. Buildings and bridges and railways sprang up across Brazil, and the wealth it generated was no longer thrown away to kill people. Instead, it stayed within the nation. Immigrants poured into Brazil to seek their fortune as the empire's burgeoning economy continued to flourish, bringing prosperity to a modernised and progressive nation. However, before we get too congratulatory, before we get too carried away here, we have to talk about one of the reasons that this economy boomed, one of the backbones of this booming economy, because it was, terribly, slavery. While the US tore itself in two over the issue of slavery in the 1860s, there was no such controversy in Brazil. More or less, everyone across the entire empire was in favour of slavery. Apart from, presumably, of course, the slaves themselves. Slavery was a foundational aspect of Brazil's prosperity. The economy only functioned as it did, people claimed, because of the role that slave labour played in it. And across the nation, hardly Anyone, from the rich to the middle class to the workers, hardly anyone saw much of an issue with that. Slave labour was entrenched across every level of Brazilian society. Slaves didn't just toil away in fields, they were made to work in industry and in personal households. Even former slaves who had secured their own freedom, they would often go on to own slaves of their own. Slavery was, essentially, not just accepted throughout Brazil, but enthusiastically supported as a national institution. It was a terrible situation, but thankfully, there was one Brazilian who, rightly, abhorred slavery, describing it as a terrible curse on any nation, someone who sought to abolish it at any cost. And luckily for Brazil, that man just so happened to be, of course, Pedro II, their emperor. Pedro himself, most unusually for an, a Brazilian aristocrat, never owned slight. Well, techni technically speaking, um, very, very briefly he did when he, he inherited about 40 of them at one point when he was a teenager. But even then, he freed them all immediately. As soon as the inheritance came through, he freed these slaves. So he... Put his money where his mouth was. He was, as we've touched upon, a lifelong opponent of slavery. And he walked the walk as well as talking the talk. His abolitionism was well and truly broadcast throughout the 1850s when he cracked, cracked down on the illegal import of slaves. And it continued into the 1860s. However, he wasn't able to make much headway due to the wars that Brazil was busy fighting. There were other issues that sort of took the spotlight away from his continued efforts uh, to abolish slavery. 
But in 1870, abolitionism was put back on the agenda by Pedro II, who faced near universal criticism and resistance from everyone across his empire in the face of his attempts to uh, to abolish slavery. People from all sides of politics, from all walks of life, more or less everyone in Brazil, again, apart from the slaves themselves, they opposed Pedro's abolitionism. They called it national suicide. But we have already seen the power behind Pedro's adamantine backbone. He is not about to relent on this point, just as he didn't relent on anything else. Pedro essentially staked his monarchy on it. And while he didn't manage to completely abolish slavery on the spot in the 1870s, he appointed an abolitionist president of his council of ministers, Jose Paranos, uh, who forced the issue and managed to rally sufficient support for what became known as the Law of Free Birth. In 1871, the law of free birth passed, meaning that any child born to an enslaved woman would be free and not enslaved. So while this didn't end slavery on the spot, it meant that if you waited long enough, there would be no slaves left. So this was an important, but not final, step towards abolitionism in Brazil, thanks to Pedro, who, as I say, staked his monarchy on it. This bloke was so popular and enjoyed so much support that he was able to force through an issue that was universally opposed across his nation. And I can't think of a better use of that sort of power than to, in the face of seemingly insurmountable opposition, force a nation down the path of positive progress. Anyway, after fighting an external war against Paraguay and an internal war against advocates of slavery, I'll tell you this, Pedro... He needed a bloody holiday, mate. This bloke was an absolute workaholic. He needed he needed some time off. And in 1871, he got a reason to step back from his duties for a brief period. Although it, uh, it wasn't for a very nice reason. His daughter Leopoldina had died, very young, in her 20s, while travelling in Europe. And this gave Pedro reason enough to leave Brazil for a time. He travelled first to Portugal, where he visited his old stepmum, Amelie, in, uh, in Lisbon. Um, his dad had died years ago, remember. And then after this began a tour of Europe. He visited his daughter's grave in Germany, but also visited more or less every single other major European nation as well. And while he was over there, quick, quick trip over to Egypt too, to see the pyramids. He kept his, his visits deliberately very low-key. He travelled incognito as Dom Pedro de Alcantara, not as Emperor Pedro II of Brazil. And while travelling around on what was, for lack of a better term, a holiday, he, uh, he met with very many famous scientists and intellectuals of the day. He received broad congratulations across the European continent for his work in abolishing slavery and establishing the law of free birth. And Pedro greatly enjoyed this trip. It was a welcome break from the trials and tribulations of leadership. And uh, as we've talked about, this bloke, he he was a diligent and dedicated monarch, but you could tell that it didn't bring him all that much joy to devote his entire life to, to statecraft and, and imperial affairs. So the time that he spent in Europe seemed to pass very, very happily, and uh, it was something that he looked back on very, very fondly. Uh, after returning to Brazil, which he did in 1872. And of course, once he got back, he had more stuff he had to deal with. Uh, For instance, the Brazilian Catholic Church wasn't happy with how much influence the government had over them, but Pedro, he put them back in their place. Despite being a devout Catholic himself, he told them to put a sock in it and, uh, and managed to, once again, steady the ship, see off a potential political crisis. He's constantly keeping all these, these plates spinning. And honestly, I don't know how he did it. It's, uh, it's, it's incredible. There were no other major crises in Brazil throughout the 1870s. But um, Pedro's devotion to his imperial duties really were starting to weigh on the poor bloke. He felt trapped by his crown. He spent some more time traveling again. In 1876, he went across the US. He went uh, from New York to San Francisco, traveling, traveling the breadth of the country. And then uh, even went up into Kanakistan. He visited, he visited Toronto in Canada. Uh, after this, he headed across the Atlantic once more, another European trip. Uh, and then, uh, then went all the way over to the Ottoman Empire and he visited the Holy Land. These travels seemed to be very agreeable to Pedro. He enjoyed traveling incognito. He enjoyed being able to do things like take a train somewhere without being swamped by people who recognized him or, or have a chat with someone informally without them being starstruck or, or deferential. 
But again, duty called after another year and a bit away, he returned to Brazil. And it's here, I'm sorry to say, that Pedro's career as an emperor began to decline. He arrived back in Brazil in 1877, but his weariness with the position of emperor and a lack of male heirs meant that his enthusiasm for the Brazilian monarchy had had just kind of dried up. He didn't seem to have much left in the tank, but he still forced himself to go through all the required duties of an emperor. I will say this, I will say this, for as exhausted as the bloke was, he still threw his weight behind important social issues, helping the push for expanded women's rights, for instance, and he never ever gave up on abolitionism. But here's what's really interesting about Pedro's later reign and its decline. It wasn't just Pedro himself and his lack of, of enthusiasm, although that certainly played into it. That was, that was a major factor by all accounts. More broadly, Pedro had been a steady hand on the tiller for decades, decades and decades. And all of the elder statesmen who had survived and could still remember the turbulence and the chaos of the Regency, they're starting to die off. And replacing them was a generation of politicians who had only ever known, the Paraguayan War notwithstanding, they had only ever known the peace and the prosperity that Pedro was responsible for having brought to Brazil. In his early reign, Pedro was untouchable. He was beyond criticism, a model emperor. Everyone absolutely loved the bloke. And why wouldn't they? They knew he was the reason that Brazil was as prosperous as it was. But now... People just kind of took everything that he had brought to the table for granted because they'd never known anything different. There was a brand new political class of people who didn't realise how important the emperor had been to the continued success of Brazil. But now Pedro had become a victim of his own success. At the outset, he'd been a strong, unifying figure for an empire that desperately needed a steadfast and reliable leader to get them through the turmoil turmoil and the chaos. But he was so successful in turning the fortunes of Brazil around that he made his own position irrelevant and unnecessary because the empire no longer needed a unifying figure or a steadfast leader. There was no turmoil or chaos. Brazil was a progressive, peaceful, secure, forward-thinking, and modern society with marvellous infrastructure, a booming economy, and the broad respect of other powerful nations around the world as an emerging power. And so much of this was thanks to Pedro. But all of those who remembered his immense successes as a younger emperor, they were all dying off. And the new generations of politicians saw him as an old, weary, an inconvenient relic of a bygone era. And look, Pedro didn't help this perception either. He was, uh, he was extremely pessimistic about the future of the Brazilian monarchy, particularly as he didn't have a male heir. Um, he, he considered the fact that he didn't have a son to mean that the, the, collapse, the, the collapse of the monarchy was more or less inevitable. Even he, with his extremely progressive views for the time, he was in agreement with his people in considering his daughter Isabel unfit for rule as a woman. And so, at long, long last, it all began to unravel. In the halls of power, people openly criticised Pedro. They questioned his role in, in modern Brazilian politics. And politicians no longer leapt to the defence of their emperor in the face of political opponents. Now, this wasn't true amongst ordinary people. They still loved their emperor. They were still very happy with him. But sadly, things only got worse for Pedro into the 1880s as his health began to decline. And honestly, no bloody wonder, because this bloke had worked himself half to death. His overworked mind and body had finally come forward and presented him with the bill. He was constantly exhausted, um, and despite attempting to remain dedicated to all of his imperial, imperial responsibilities and involved in the governance of Brazil... He would sometimes just doze off in meetings. In 1882, he was diagnosed with what we now know to be diabetes. He began to have kidney problems as well. By 1887, his health had become so bad that he travelled to Europe again to seek further treatment. And happily, however, while he was there in Milan in 1888, he heard the news 
Brazil finally had abolished slavery once and for all. A law signed by his daughter, Isabel, his regent while he was away. She had been instrumental in promoting and ultimately achieving full abolition in Brazil. She had obviously inherited Pedro's firm abolitionist views, and Isabel played a massive part in finally pushing through the last reform required to remove the institution of slavery from Brazil forever. Pedro, after finding this out, he was overcome. He cried, he cried tears of joy. And it wasn't long after the abolition of slavery, after he had uh, been treated in, uh, in Europe, that he returned to Brazil. His, his return was widely celebrated. As I say, ordinary Brazilians, they still love the bloke, even if his political influence and relevance had waned. But sadly, Pedro's reign as emperor wouldn't last much longer after his return. And not for the reason you're thinking. Despite him still being very unwell, he didn't die. Well, so, yeah, obviously, yes, obviously he did die eventually, of course, but he didn't die as emperor of Brazil. By the end of the 1880s, republicanism wasn't a particularly widespread ideology in Brazil. Most Brazilians, as I say, they're in, in support of their emperor, as world-weary as he was, and uh, as complicated as the issue of his, of his succession was going to be. The monarchy, it still enjoyed broad and enthusiastic support from ordinary people. However, there were, amongst the ruling class, a small number of diehard republicans that sought the end of the monarchy. Now, this wasn't a secret. Pedro knew about these people and his tolerance for diverse political views in his governments meant that he had hired them as ministers and advisors and officers. He didn't suppress or censor their views. He, he even exempted them from swearing oaths of allegiance to the imperial throne. However, unfortunately for Pedro, or honestly, perhaps not unfortunately, given how tired the bloke was of being emperor, these Republicans counted amongst their number both influential politicians and powerful military officers. And with the frail Pedro now in his 60s returning from Europe and with a messy succession looming with his death, these Republicans began to put their heads together. They envisioned a dictatorial republic where a small cadre of elites could rule the nation as they saw fit, dispensing all together with the monarchy. About a year after Pedro returned from Europe in 1888, this small but very powerful Republican movement decided to take action. And so it was that in November 1889, one of the strangest Republican revolutions in history took place. On the 14th of November, around 600 troops were gathered by the Republican Field Marshal Diodoro da Fonseca, many of the soldiers not even knowing where they were going or what they were doing. Diodoro marched this contingent of troops all the way to the Imperial Palace, and with them in tow, he presented Pedro with a list of demands, including a list of people that he wanted to be included in a new government cabinet. He wasn't calling for a revolution, he wasn't calling for a republic at this stage, but he was kicking off a chain of events that would very swiftly bring down the Brazilian monarchy. Because at this point, it's not even clear that it's a revolution. It's just a kind of agro-military officer putting on a bit of a show, marching up and down with a couple of hundred troops. In fact, it wasn't until the very next day, in the 15th, right, that a, another Republican, the, the Viscount of Aur Preto, sent a telegram to Pedro II informing him that there actually, yes, there was officially a Republican rebellion against his rule. And that's what all the troops and everything else last night had been about. Now, Pedro seemed supremely unconcerned. I think he expected something like this to happen. And while his advisors urged him to organise a resistance to the Republicans, Pedro instead did nothing. That evening, a council of senior government ministers got together and decided to try to appease Diodoro and, and address his demands. But by that time, Diodoro had changed his mind. He instead proclaimed a republic and surrounded the palace with troops. But again, Pedro didn't respond. At long last, the fight had gone out of the old emperor, and realising what was happening, Pedro is quoted as having said, If it is so, it will be my retirement. I have worked too hard, and I am tired. I will go and rest then. And that was it. 
that was the end of the revolution and the end of the short-lived Brazilian empire, brought down with one of the most anti-climatic revolutions in history. But it's good that there was no bloodshed, I suppose. But all the same, it was an ignominious end to an otherwise glorious career. Pedro, the great emperor, too tired to do anything other than completely capitulate. Pedro impassively accepted the Republicans' demands for him to go into exile. Apparently, the leading Republicans were too ashamed to meet him personally, and so they sent junior officers to evict him from the palace instead. So many of these Republicans had immense personal respect for Pedro and weren't proud of the fact that they were ousting him from office, but obviously they felt that that was the only course of action left available to them, and so... In one of the most unspectacular instances of revolution in history, they brought the imperial monarchy down. But Pedro, he and his family, they left Brazil without fanfare two days later on the 17th of November, 1889, and Pedro would never return. He went to his fate willingly, a tired old man who had given everything he had to his realm, and as I said before, just had nothing left in the tank. He seemed completely unconcerned with being overthrown in this way. Again, it was like he expected it. He did nothing to try to resist or prevent it. A great emperor brought low, and the rest of his life, brief as it was, was a far cry from how his younger years were lived. His wife, Teresa Cristina, died within weeks of arriving in Europe, and Pedro himself, now alone, settled down in Paris, living in hotels on a a very limited budget, He had no ambition to return to Brazil as emperor. He had no ambition to do anything, really. And after a handful of short years, his life finally came to an end when he died of pneumonia in 1891. Despite his daughter Isabel insisting on a small and private funeral, the nation of France insisted on a lavish state funeral instead one that was attended by royalty from around Europe and government representatives from around the world, but not from Brazil. Back in Brazil, under the military Republican dictatorship, things had unraveled extremely quickly without Pedro. The country began a period of sharp decline when elections were rigged, the media was tightly controlled, and all the freedoms and liberties enjoyed by so many Brazilians under Pedro for so long began to swiftly evaporate. And worse yet, after its golden age with Pedro at the helm as emperor, unending political turmoil took hold in Brazil. In the words of Brazilian writer Pedro Carp Vasquez, the Brazilian Republic faced 12 states of emergency, 17 institutional acts, the National Congress dissolved six times, 19 military revolutions, two presidential resignations, three presidents prevented from assuming office, four presidents deposed, seven different constitutions, four dictatorships, and nine authoritarian governments. Brazil was never the same ever again after Pedro. Monarchy doesn't tend to be a form of government that I have a particularly high opinion of, but I tell you what, with someone like Pedro II on the throne, I don't think I'd mind it too much. Pedro was a far-sighted, progressive, just, honest, tolerant, wise, and steadfast emperor, doing so much good for his nation and his people across his 58 years in charge. He modernised Brazil both economically and politically. He ushered in an era of unprecedented personal freedom for Brazilians. He helped to make them richer than ever. He tirelessly worked to make Brazil the best nation that it could possibly be and did this nowhere more evidently than when he helped to finally abolish slavery throughout his empire. I have immense admiration for Pedro and his achievements. It's not very often to have a historical figure of his kind with a near-universal positive legacy. But it's not just me who thinks this. Real historians, too, are in broad agreement that Pedro was one of the greatest monarchs worldwide ever to have lived. And today, in Brazil specifically, he is still considered one of the greatest Brazilians ever to have lived. 
Although, I will say, he has never ranked quite as high as Pele or Ronaldo, which eh, shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, really. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Pedro II of Brazil, who I completely forgot to mention, um, was known, or is still known uh, to history, as Pedro the Magnanimous. That's the reason for the episode title being what it was. I just forgot to include that at any point during his story, so sorry about that. Anyway, um, I want to whiz through all the housekeeping stuff really quickly so we can get on to the, what I want to talk about here. So halfhousesissue.net, contact form, um, uh, Patreon, Public, friends, enemies, people who feel ambivalent about. Firstly... I want to address uh, something. I want to uh, I want to address the very very many emails uh, that I was excoriated by throughout this week, um, and I want to offer my sincere and unreserved apologies for having put out what is undoubtedly the worst episode of Half Ass History in the five and a half years I've been doing this Tin Pot History podcast. When I released last week's episode on the Elgin Marbles. Not the Elgin marbles. Um, yep, should have looked that one up before I recorded an entire episode on it. Oops, um, I got a great many emails um, about this. Uh, thank you for, for your uncompromising feedback, particularly to the person who made fun of me, not for not just being able to uh, pronounce foreign names and foreign words, but also not being able to pronounce English words as well. That was... Very good of you to have spent the time to type that out. Thank you very much. Certainly brought me to ground. Um, no, in all seriousness, sorry. Um, that would irritate the... Oh, it's going it, to... It does irritate the hell out of me. It would have irritated me to listen to it. I am considering going back and re-recording the entire episode as long as it was. I don't think I will. This is, after all, half-assed history. But again, all the same, I would like to apologize for having stuffed that up so monumentally. And it only gets worse from there. Because, as was pointed out by extremely alert listener Elijah Beach, I also repeated the Reddit question. It is, I think, the first time in 285 episodes that I have I have made this mistake, but uh, I uh, used the same Reddit question last week as I did in uh, episode 89, Diogenes, get across it. So thank you, Elijah, for pointing that out, and um, maybe people wouldn't have noticed, but... You're sure going to notice it now because I've just put it on the podcast here as well. So mm, compounding my errors. But no, actually, do go back and listen to episode 89. Do get across it because it is, uh, it's certainly one of the better ones. It's definitely better than the Elgin Marbles because I didn't go through that episode calling him Diogenes. Anyway, um, we'll put that behind us and we'll move on. And uh, I'll move on now to share something with you, uh, something I think you'll enjoy listening to a lot more than me... Um, saying the word Elgin for an hour. Um, I said I had something to announce, and I certainly do. Um, earlier this year, uh, I think it was back in, when was it, around March, I think? I don't know. It's been going on for quite a while now. Um, Quarter Us History was uh, was launched, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed writing these shorter episodes. Um, I've enjoyed people sending in topics that wouldn't quite make it uh, for a... Um, for a full-length episode, I feel like it's been uh, a real return to form in terms of half-ass history, getting back to where it began with these silly stories about stuff that, again, just wouldn't fill out the, I was going to say 40 minutes, but with, with the, at the rate I'm going now, these full-length episodes seem to, seem to just be pushing 60 every week. Anyway, um, so with that in mind, it gives me great pleasure to tell you, exalted listener, that you can expect... Yet another short-form episode on your podcast feed every week, starting in the first week of January and continuing all the way through to the end of 2024, I am launching the second small short-form spin-off of half Hour History. This one is called Monuments. I had this idea um, when traveling around Europe, traveling around Italy um, in July, earlier this year when I was uh, in, in Rome, uh, walking around with Megan. And uh, we walk past all these, you know, really famous monuments, things like the, the Colosseum and whatever else. And, and Megan would turn to me and be like, oh, you know, what's the story of this? What's what's this all about? What's going on with this? Given that I supposedly have this knowledge of history and I just didn't know. And I was there desperately looking stuff up on Wikipedia and being like, oh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was built, in, uh, built, built in 79. So, yeah, yeah, just, uh, yeah I, I definitely knew that. I wasn't just looking it up. 
So I thought how interesting it would be to go through all of the most famous, most spectacular and well-known monuments from throughout the world and just give you a brief history on them. Kind of like I did with um, the Quarter House History episode on the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? So what I've done is I have gone through and prepared a list of 52 of the most famous monuments worldwide, all around the globe, right? Across all the continents, except Antarctica. Haven't built a whole lot there just yet. And each week we will work our way through this list uh, in chronological order, starting with Stonehenge and finishing up with the Sydney Opera House. And we'll talk about why and how these monuments were built, their importance uh, throughout history, and why they're so famous and well-known today. And it's my hope that uh, this podcast won't just be interesting for people to listen to week in and week out, but also if you ever happen to visit one of these monuments with a friend or an enemy or a person about whom you feel largely ambivalent, you will be able to effortlessly impress everyone with the depth of knowledge you have just off the cuff about whichever monument it is that you're visiting. I'm very excited to bring uh, monuments uh, to half Arts history. Uh, I think it's going to be good fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning a lot myself about all these different monuments. Um, I don't need topic suggestions. I have every single monument uh, worked out for every week of the year. And uh, I hope that uh, I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that it is something that uh, enriches your experience of this podcast more broadly. Uh, I hope it's something that you look forward to. And um, I hope it's not something that I get bored of after a couple of weeks and decide I don't want to do anymore. So let me know what you think of the idea. Let me know what you think of the episodes once they release. As I say, the first one will be coming out in the first week of January, kicking things off with Stonehenge, of course, and working our way through the ages all the way through to uh, to the 1970s when uh, when the Sydney Opera House was completed. So looking forward to that. And, uh, and I hope that you are too. Uh, thanks for bearing with me through this extremely long episode uh, for this uh, this announcement. I hope it was worth it. And uh, if you didn't, well, you're not listening to this, so um, I guess enjoy being a bit confused as to why there are, there's a new episode coming out in a couple of weeks and from there on every week thereafter. So anyway, thanks for uh, being a part of this episode of Half-House History. I've already said all the housekeeping stuff. You know it. You've listened to it a million times. If you haven't, if you're a new listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. Go back and listen to literally any other episode and it'll walk you through all the Patreon merch, everything like that, whatever else. Also, um, for those who are wondering, I, I'm not still sending out stickers. Sorry about that. <laughs> I should, probably should have addressed that. Anyway, thanks for uh, being part of another episode of half Hour History. Looking forward to your company next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, one that we definitely haven't covered before. This one comes to us from Echo the Collapse, who asks, if there are nine zeros in a billion, how many zeros are there in a Brazilian? <laughs>